It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. On Saturday, the second impeachment of former President Donald Trump came to an end after the Senate voted to acquit the former president on the charge of inciting violence on January 6th at the Capitol building. The Senate voted to convict 57 to 43, which fell short of the supermajority needed to convict. However, the seven Republicans voting to convict have prompted new questions about the future of the Republican Party. We'll start there with our panel, editor and CEO of The Dispatch and co-host of The Dispatch podcast. Steve Hayes, founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and AEI resident fellow Matthew Cottonetti, and USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page. Susan, we've had the impeachment wrap up now, but obviously the political fallout from it continues. How much does it continue and for how long? Well, I think it uh, continues for some time. The fallout from the impeachment and especially the fallout from the decision by the Senate uh, to acquit former President Trump, it makes it that the former president remains free to run again for for the White House if he chooses to do that. It makes him continue to be a a pretty formidable force in the Republican Party. And that means that the Republican Party is entering what seems to be virtually a civil war over what direction it should take. Matthew, is that the civil war? Are we going to see that ahead of 2022? Uh, We've been seeing it for several months, Brett. I think the Civil War started uh, when President Trump refused to accept the results of the election. And you saw him basically going after uh, members of his own party, in uh, particular in Georgia and in Arizona. And then, of course, uh, infamously against his own vice president on January 6th. So I think this fight uh, between the forces in the GOP who want to move on from the Trump presidency and the forces in the GOP who believe that it is now effectively a Trump party, not a Republican party, is going to continue at least through the primaries in 2022 and maybe uh, in the presidential cycle in 2024. Is there, Steve, a post-January 6th where the Republican Party somehow unifies and puts that in the rearview mirror, or is it too big, too shocking to do that? Yeah, no, I don't think so. If you look at the the fallout from January 6th, I mean, just the debate over Im- impeachment over the weekend among Senate Republicans and the continuing conversation among Republicans and conservatives broadly, it's very clear that there are the, the two camps that Matthew has identified, and they both believe in what they're doing as strongly as they ever have. I mean, on the one side, you have sort of the Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, um, maybe Kevin McCarthy wing that seems to want to continue a full embrace of Donald Trump. On the other side, you have people like Liz Cheney, Ben Sass, Mitt Romney, and maybe Mitch McConnell, who think it's time to move on from the former president. And, you know, as, as Liz Cheney would put it, get back to a politics of truth and reality. And as long as you have such a chasm between the two groups, I think any talk of unity at this point is is premature. It's, it's just not reflecting reality. Well, let's talk, Susan, about the Biden administration and going forward here. There are voices inside the Democratic Party saying there needs to be more of a bipartisan push on legislation and others saying, no, you need to keep going with the executive orders. 
and jam what you can through Congress. Yeah. Well, of course, nobody has talked talked more about bipartisanship than Joe Biden from from the beginning of his presidential bid. But he has, I think, he is demonstrating that he learned some lessons from Barack Obama's experience in seeking bipartisanship and not getting it uh, when it came to things like the Affordable Care Act. So you really see the Biden White House talking about bipartisanship, the president meeting with Republican senators who wanted to have their own uh, ideas about how to proceed on a stimulus plan. But the White House and Democrats on the Hill are prepared to move with reconciliation, which is, of course, a process that you use when you don't think you're going to get any bipartisanship, when you're not going to count on any Republican votes, you're going to get it through using a parliamentary maneuver that relies only on Democratic votes. I think that is the direction they are going because they are favoring speed over unity. But in doing that, Matthew, you give people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema a lot of power, potentially. Uh, that's right. And so you need both of their votes in order to get it uh, through the Senate if you choose to go down the path of reconciliation. And that is bad news, I think, for the advocates of a $15 federally uh, mandated minimum wage, because both Manchin and Cinema have suggested that a minimum wage increase does not belong in a, a reconciliation package. Uh, what, what's interesting to me, Brett, is there are really three points of dispute on this bill. One is the minimum wage. Another is the, um, the checks uh, and where they should go into wh- which families they should go to. And then the third is the state and local uh, aid, which uh, most studies show the states don't really need. Uh, the states have weathered this storm pretty well. Part of the contrarian part of me actually believes that if the minimum wage is dropped, if the threshold for the checks is lowered so that you know upper middle class families who don't need the money don't get it, and maybe some of the state and local aid is reduced, you might actually see one or two Republicans uh, support this bill as well. Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I suppose that's possible. I guess I'm I'm I, I'm less of the view that that what Joe Biden has done is come in and sort of look around Washington and and take the temperature of everybody in Washington and made a decision that he was going to forego bipartisanship and and work primarily along party lines, but that this was basically the plan coming in. I mean, if you go back and you look carefully at the the statements coming from the White House, even as you had the the group of moderate Republicans present an alternative plan, what people thought might be the beginning of a compromise discussion. You had the White House saying, in effect, look, we're not having a discussion about going smaller. The discussion about it is about whether this is not big enough. And pretty clearly, I think, sending signals that, that they were going to do what the progressive wing of the Democratic Party wanted them to do. Now, certainly progressives would have wanted Joe Biden to go further. And you've had you know a lot of the kind of rhetoric, I think, urging Biden to take advantage of this crisis to really uh, go deeper. But it seems to me that he's pretty well staked out a path that says, I'm relying on Democrats here, and I am not particularly apologetic about it. We'll hear what they have to say after this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, What exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. 
As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Susan, obviously the biggest thing is the COVID relief package that they're going to go through. And we're talking about that. One of the big allies is a governor in New York who is now under fire, Andrew Cuomo. And a lot of media who maybe didn't cover it at the beginning are now covering it after multiple reports about the number of uh, deaths in nursing homes and how his decisions may have affected that. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, he he seemed to be doing so well when he was the was basically the counterpart to President Trump. He was giving those briefings that seemed so fact based. Uh, doesn't look that way now. He is just in a, in a load of uh, political trouble among other things. Remember the book he wrote about his leadership lessons from handling COVID. I wonder how that is doing on Amazon at the moment. Or the Emmy Award. That's also <laughs> questionable in those briefings. Um, thoughts about Andrew Cuomo? Uh, Cuomo uh, never fails to disappoint. Um, he's a, a remarkably uh, hypocritical figure, has been for some time. I remember his speech at the DNC last year where he started saying that Trump was the virus, Trump was responsible for everything that had gone wrong. Uh, with America's response to the virus. This is the same governor who had praised Trump in the summer for getting aid, federal aid to New York when it was in its direst of straits last spring. So uh, I think he deserves the time in the barrel that, he, that he's been put into. I mean, Steve, we're not short on hypocrisy when it comes to Washington, but it is quite something to watch this kind of lift up for Cuomo and now circle the wagons because uh, people are coming after him. Well, I mean, think about before we, we learned these things, and it's important to note that these are disclosures that started basically with members of his own staff. Even before we learned of, of this, this latest scandal, and I think it is most certainly a scandal, think about the audacity that it took to write a book to, you know, to, or to, to have somebody ghostwrite a book or to work with you on a book, proclaiming yourself a, a revolutionary leader about a crisis that was still unfolding, particularly when you saw the numbers that New York had at the outset. I mean, I think the, the, the praise that he got largely was from members of the media. It wasn't necessarily from people in New York who thought he was doing such a great job. So I, I think this is, this is his comeuppance and I don't expect this to go away very quickly. I mean, you've had like, non-trivial calls on Andrew Cuomo to resign or consider resigning because this is, is so bad. You can't cover up information of this nature and hope to not have it take a serious toll on your, your political standing if the cover is exposed. And that's what's happened. Our one last thing around the horn here. What's the thing that we're not covering or not covering enough 
um, big picture. Susan, first to you. Well, this is something that's gotten a fair amount of coverage, but I do think it's important. And that is the participation of law enforcement and military veterans in the January 6th assault on the Capitol, I find of great concern, very worrisome. And I wonder what's behind that, how big a problem that might be and what we should should do about it. And I hope that as we move toward hopefully looking at January 6th in not a partisan way, but in a way of what, what do we need to do to preserve and rebuild our democracy? I hope that gets a look. Matthew? You know, I think Mitch McConnell's speech uh, after he voted to acquit President Trump um, raised a, a real threat to the president, and that is uh, not only criminal, but civil litigation. You know, there are already the two investigations out of New York into President Trump's finances. There's the investigation out of Georgia into his inappropriate calls to Georgia election officials to try to come up with the votes that would have changed the result there. And now, as Mitch McConnell said, there's even this idea that civil litigation from individuals affected by the riot on January 6th could um, go after President Trump's supposedly deep pockets. Um, This is a president who is wounded, a former president who is wounded, and I don't think he's that the threats to his future are, have disappeared, even if he was acquitted by the Senate. Steve? Yeah, I have an idea that picks up on, on both what Susan and Matthew have said, both with respect to the future of the Republican, also Donald Trump. And that is uh, the prospect of a 9-11 style commission to investigate what happened uh, in the days leading up to and on January 6th. You know, Nancy Pelosi has announced that she's in favor of such a commission. She wants to set it up. It's curious to me that this was not a bipartisan announcement. There's a lot of behind the scenes talk among Republicans about whether such a commission is a good idea. You can imagine that the people who voted not to convict President Trump or voted against impeachment might not be as enthusiastic about such an idea because it could expose facts that make those votes even more difficult to explain down the road, particularly as we're headed towards 2022. But then you have this other faction that we discussed earlier among Republicans who I think is very eager to get the full story of what happened uh, in those days before and, and on January 6th. It'll be very interesting. I think Mitch McConnell's the key to this. Does Mitch McConnell uh, embrace this kind of a commission going along with some Democrats who are no doubt enthusiastic about it? Um, I think in part because he wants to find out what happened, but also in part because uh, he wants to see Donald Trump sidelined. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I have one, and that is Biden-China policy. I think that uh, it's a focus, but watch Taiwan and Hong Kong. I think on foreign policy, that's a really interesting thing that we're not covering enough as of yet. Panel, thank you very much. Here's a bit of presidential trivia. On February 24th, 1867, President Andrew Johnson became the first American president to be impeached by the House of Representatives for high crimes and misdemeanors. The House asserted President Johnson violated the Tenure of Office Act when he removed the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. The Senate voted 35 to 19 to remove the president, just one vote short of the necessary two-thirds to convict and remove him from office. That will do it for this week, but next week, be sure to listen as we launch season three of this podcast series, Brett Bear's All-Star Panel, which you can hear at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. We've got more panel discussions coming. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Steve, Matthew, and Susan, I'm Brett Bear. We'll see you next time.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.